to return with you this morning to the, our series of sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. I want to read the first 19 verses with you. Matthew 1 through 19. text will be the verses 16 through 19. Matthew chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind, but what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments, indeed those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, but what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now follows the words of our text for this morning. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. I want to just read those few verses again. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Salem with me this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've looked at this chapter, so we need to fix the context again for a minute. <clears throat> you will hopefully remember from an earlier sermon in this series that this chapter of Matthew's Gospel opened up with John in prison, experiencing some doubt about the Messiah. <clears throat> he sends his disciples to ask, are you the one we have been waiting for all these years, or must we look for another? 
Jesus confirms that he is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then after John's disciples have left to report back to John, uh, Jesus turns back to the crowd pressing around him and he explains to them they've had in their presence in their midst the greatest prophet who ever lived telling the greatest story ever told and he accused them of treating it all with indifference and with apathy and he explained that the good news of the gospel message should have shattered their cold hearts should have transformed them into violent soldiers of the cross but instead the gospel left them cold indifferent unchanged and Jesus attributes that indifference to their apathy they just didn't care. He accuses them of doing violence to the kingdom by their failure to repent and as we now continue in this chapter Jesus will accuse the crowds of another sin besides apathy unbelief. People got a question that haunts every one of us who witnesses to the gospel and the question that Jesus will answer for us this morning is why is it? Why is it that men and women will not consider and accept the gospel message. We see the indifference of the Pharisees here in our chapter, but we see the same response of men and women today. It is a well-known fact that can be documented that although the gospel message still goes out from week to week, the number of people who embrace it, that number is minute. The masses still scorn, they ridicule, or simply ignore with cold indifference the offer of so great a salvation. Why is that? Well, at the root and the heart of the problem, says Jesus, is unbelief. And it is now to that damning indictment upon humanity that Jesus addresses himself here in our text. I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme, Christ defines and exposes unbelief. We want to consider from our text, first of all, that the unbelief is ident as it is identified in the parable. We want to learn of the responsibility of that unbelief. And finally, we want to take comfort in that divine wisdom opens the eyes of unbelief. So Christ defines and exposes unbelief. The unbelief is identified in the parable. We identify the responsibility of that unbelief. And finally, we will be comforted by the fact that divine wisdom opens the eyes of unbelief. May God's spirit accompany us as we listen to God speak to us this morning. If we would be standing there among the crowds in Palestine on that day, we would have noticed that Jesus has become frustrated with his audience. He has identified himself as the promised Messiah, he has demonstrated to them many signs and wonders as evidence of his divinity. He has commended to them both John the Baptist as the greatest prophet who ever lived, proclaiming the greatest story ever told, and the response of the Pharisees was, so what? We can almost envision Jesus shaking his head as he begins to respond. He is, as it were, he's, he's almost talking to himself. And we hear him, to what shall I liken this generation? In other words, to what can I compare the attitude of you people? What kind of an example can I use to demonstrate the folly of the vast majority of you people gathered around me here in this place? To what shall I liken this generation? But we need to understand that when Jesus here is speaking of this generation, he's not referring exclusively to the people of his day there in Palestine. No, rather, 
When Jesus refers to this generation, he includes all of those who are of like mind and even all of those who even yet today who evidence a similar attitude to those to whom he was now speaking. In other words, in other words, in other words, we are to understand here that Jesus is instructing all those throughout all of history, even up to and including today, who were had a similar mind or mindset of the Pharisees. What now says Jesus? What now can I use as an example to demonstrate the foolishness of those who refuse to embrace the gospel? And it is now in that context that Jesus gives us the story of the children playing in the marketplace. These games of children, according to Christ, had the same results as is often seen among children today, as any mother will readily agree and understand. Rather than quiet, contented play, children's games often erupt into disharmony and disagreement, bringing an abrupt end to that friendly playing of the kids together. One moment we can see the kids playing quietly and suddenly an argument arises and one kid picks up his marbles and angrily goes home and the, and the friendly company of children suddenly stops. You know, Jesus likens the Jews here with him in Palestine to those children. He tells them of two groups of children playing in the marketplace. And when one group wanted to act as flute players and make merry, the other group didn't want to dance to the tune of the pipers. And when then a shift was made to portray the mourning of a funeral, then again the other group refused to beat upon their breasts in lament. They simply refused to play and to get along. They didn't want to play along. And now commentators disagree as to which group of children was likened to those of this generation in Christ's condemnation. Was it now the first group who was ready to accommodate to the wishes of the others? Or was it the other group who refused to participate at all? Which group now was responsible for the discord? Are we now to try to identify Jesus and John in the one group and the Pharisees in the other? If that's the intent of Jesus then the application of Jesus' words here become somewhat problematic. And consequently, we have disagreement among scholars as to how the parable must be interpreted. It is legitimate to conclude here, however, that whichever group was right, it would be inconceivable for Jesus to compare the seriousness of unbelief with such a trifling thing <coughs> as quarreling children. To interpret the Bible that way leaves us unsatisfied. And again, as any mother can tell you, even the most serious of squabbles between children is usually resolved and quickly forgotten, and peace and harmony is soon restored between the two warring camps. No, such an application simply will not satisfy. And now in most parables, the desired analogy can be quickly made. After all, for those who believe, that was the precise purpose of Christ's teaching in parables in the first place. The interpretation and the application is usually obvious to believers and evident. For instance, in the story of the prodigal son, we immediately identify the father as, as being analogous of God the father, and the prodigal is given us as an example of the penitent sinner. However, in this parable, the analogy is not so easily made, and it would simply appear that a different interpretation of the parable needs to be sought. When reading this parable, we need to examine it, we need to interpret it, and we need to apply it in the context of the entire truth being taught by Jesus in all of this chapter. 
My dear precious people of God, when reading your Bible, it is always so very important to pay close attention to the context. And we will see that principle so very clearly here. What I mean is this. In all of this chapter, if you remember, in all of this chapter, Jesus is pointing his accusing finger at the Pharisees, and he's identifying their attitude as being sinful unbelief. And the matter is made all the more serious in that they have already rejected the great prophet John and now also the greatest prophet Jesus. And when we understand the parable in that context, then the meaning, meaning becomes clear to us. Also, our parable comes to further clarity in the verses immediately following the parable. We read in the verses 18 and 19 of our text, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Walk with me now, follow with you closely as we examine the parable in the light of those verses those verses of scripture and the words of our Lord. You see, Jesus uses the example of children playing to show how frivolously the people treated the most momentous questions of life. If you read the entire chapter, you will know that it was precisely the question of, art thou the Christ? Art thou the Christ in whom we have been awaiting all these years that brought on this entire confrontation? In the opening verse of the chapter, John wanted confirmation. He understood that the question encompassed the things of heaven and hell for him. He understood that the question encompassed things of life, and for him the, the question was crucial. But, but the masses the masses scorned and ridiculed this, this all-important question, and they rejected him who stood at the center of the answer. And in that context now, Jesus here uses this parable to teach the Pharisees of their, that, that their attitude towards John and to Jesus was like that of those little children who in fickleness first wanted to make merry and then wanted to play a game of mourning. And when they could not agree about which game, the fun stopped. And each side accused and resented the other, blaming each other that they could not play and have a good time. And Jesus said it is to that kind of foolishness, that kind of childishness, that I would compare those of you who are offended by the Christ. People of God, gird up the loins of your mind with me, as Peter says, and continue, continue to follow me carefully for a moment as we work this out together. In the verses 7 through 9 of this chapter, we learn that the Pharisees had once revered John the Baptist. He left a remarkable impression on them. But the fun was soon over. His message began to make claims on their life and their lifestyle, and that was unacceptable to them. And on his heels came Jesus himself, and again they were initially impressed, but again they find fault and they reject him. The Jews of our text, they found fault with every teacher and every prophet sent by God. First came John the Baptist, preaching repentance. The Jews saw him, oh, a harsh, stern, austere man, a man who withdrew himself from society, lived an ascetic life, a hermit. Did that satisfy the Jews? No. They found fault with him and said, this man has a devil. He's demon-possessed. He's a strange eccentric. His diet of locusts and honey, his hermit lifestyle, his strange clothes and his stern mannerism clearly indicates that this man is a lunatic. Do not believe him. These were the ones 
you remember, who did violence to the kingdom. They rejected the messenger and the message. But then comes Jesus, the Son of God, preaching the gospel, living as other men lived, and having none of John's peculiar eccentricities. But also, this did not satisfy the Jews. Listen to their objections now. Behold, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and publicans and sinners. You see, says Jesus. Do you see, says Jesus? You are as hard to please as those foolish children in the marketplace. You criticize John because of his stern demeanor and his austere lifestyle. But I followed you as the exact opposite, and you rejected me and accused me of being a glutton, a drinker, and far too popular with the people. You Pharisees, says Jesus, are like those fickle children of the marketplace. Your games are over. The novelty is gone. And both Jesus and John left you unaffected and bored. Jesus' a scathing rebuke identified their apathetic sin for what it really was, unbelief. And now, my dear precious people of God, we need to examine this parable in the context of our own world. We need to bring it home. The Bible is explicitly clear in teaching us that the masses of people who perish eternally do so because of unbelief. No one will deny that. We all agree. But a strange twist has been added to that biblical teaching, a shift which has had a devastating effect in our society in general, and a shift that is now also having impact on much of contemporary evangelical Christianity. What has happened, you see, is that Satan has convinced our culture that when men and women make a mess of their lives, the fault lies not with them, No, it is their environment that has shaped these people. For example, criminals are criminals not because of their sinful conduct. No, it's because of their broken home, their abusive alcoholic father, their promiscuous mother, or it is a missed opportunity that has given birth to this monster. He attended the wrong schools. He surrounded himself with the wrong friends. Do you see the masterstroke of Satan in this approach? Satan has convinced us that the blame needs to be shifted away from man personally, from man's own responsibility. And consequently, criminals are no longer punished for their crimes. No, they need to be rehabilitated. My dear people of God, do not be deceived. Satan has worked his deception into the heart of much of contemporary Christianity. Most churches, tragically, even some evangelical churches, have become convinced that although people are indeed perishing in unbelief, their unbelieving condition is a result of simply not having been given the proper information. Had they been properly instructed, they would surely have been rescued from the, the destruction. In other words, although men and women are indeed being lost in all eternity, it's not their fault. And on the sincere but ill-informed Christian, and on the church in particular then, is laid a tremendous burden of guilt in their failure to evangelize faithfully or vigorously and effectively. People are being lost, we're told. People are being lost because we're not doing our job as Christians. And my dear precious saints of God, we need to walk carefully here for a moment because I do not wish to be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that we need not be concerned about the eternal destination of millions of men and women who will perish in unbelief. No, the exact opposite is true. 
It is the clear and convincing testimony of Scripture that all of those who have experienced the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ must be and will be consumed by a desire to witness to the good news of salvation freely given. It will be out of the necessity of the case. It will be a a burning desire for the Christian to work for the salvation of others in spreading the good news of the gospel. However, and this needs to be understood by us, Although Satan would have us believe that millions are perishing because they simply have not been told, the Bible would have us know that millions will perish in spite of having been told. Walk with me. In North America, with all of the methods of modern communication and with what is now called information and communication highways, with evangelists in most communities, with church buildings on virtually every street corner, with television, radios, and the internet in every home, millions of men and women, the masses, the vast majority, according to the polls, will perish in unbelief eternally. They will die now and forever, but people of God, they will die not because they haven't heard, no. They will perish in unbelief because they have refused to believe what they have heard. We need to be clear on that. And now the parable comes into focus for us. We have played the flute and you would not dance. We have mourned and you would not lament. You've heard the message of John, a lunatic, you said. You saw the miracles of Christ, unbelievable, you said. We presented the gospel this way and that way and you rejected it all in unbelief. And still today, there are millions of people all over the world who demonstrate the exact same attitude as did the Jews of our text. Jesus points to their sin of unbelief and identifies it as a refusal to accept the message despite the earnest attempt of the messenger. And people of God, the same is still true today. Tell men and women of salvation by grace. And they cry out against a a doctrine of free grace as making men careless and profane. Tell them of the holiness required. And at once they respond, we're too strict, too precise, too legalistic. Are we cheerful Christians? They will accuse us of being frivolous. Are we then serious? We'll be called gloomy and sour. Do we distance ourselves from certain forms of worldly entertainment? They denounce us as being puritanical, antiquated, old-fashioned. Do we then go out into the world? They sneer that they see no difference between us and the world. See here, people of God, the same response as the Jews of our text. Did I send John? He was an eccentric, possessed of a demon. Did I send the Son of God? You branded him a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners and publicans. Listen with me now again to the word of God here in our text. I played the flute, you would not dance. I mourned, you would not lament. I appealed to you over and over and over again, and you would not come. How often have I not tried to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not come in order that you might have salvation. I sent you John, who neither ate nor drank, You rejected him as a demon-possessed person. I then sent Christ, the Son of God, who ate and drank, and you denounced him as a glutton, a a wine-bibber. People of God, Jesus here, in the words of the parable, places 
the responsibility of the eternal condemnation of men and women on the shoulders of whom it properly belongs. He places it on the shoulders of men and women who have heard, who have been warned, but who refuse to believe. That's the language of the Bible. Stand your ground. Do not let Satan's deception of the world distort that biblical truth, regardless of what modern psychology wants you to know. But another thought needs to be captured by us as well. In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 6, we read, And there are diversities of activities, but it is all the same God who works it in all men. And in that context, we need to take comfort in the knowledge that all of us who labor for the salvation of souls, especially those of us who are called by God and ordained by the churches as ministers of the word, but also to each and every believer in this, is this comfort and the knowledge that God bestows to each of us certain yet different gifts and talents. And these talents are to be used for God's glory, for the salvation of souls, but the gifts and the talents are different in accordance with the measure of God. Capture this with me. In the task of witnessing and especially in preaching, there is a diversity of gifts. The ability and the genius, if you will, of one fall out this way, for another it falls in another way. Some of us are sons of thunder. Others are Barnabas, sons of consolation. But according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one and the same spirit works these things. And therefore we ought not to praise one talent over against another. Rather, we need to see that God has given both in his wisdom as part of his working to reach a diversity of people, people, people with widely differing understandings and emotions. However, having understood that, then we need to now also see that the various methods that God uses in these differing talents, for the most part, are ineffectual. That's also what we see here in the words of Christ in the parable. We have piped, you would not dance. We lamented, you would not mourn. In other words, the hearts of men and women have not been affected by one method or another. Think with me here for a moment. If the gospel is presented <coughs> in all of its various forms, and yet if people will not be bound by laws, if people will not be invited by promises, if people will not be frightened by threatenings, if people will not be awakened by the greatest things, if they will not be alert by the sweetest things, if they will not be startled by the most terrible things, if people will not listen to the voice of God in Scripture, what more then can be done? People of God, do not be discouraged when your efforts to convince others of the need of the Christ fail. Mourn for that lost soul, but be comforted that the work of John the Baptist and the preaching of our Lord himself met with precisely the same result in opposition. Unbelief is a consequence of sin. It is not simply a question of not having yet been presented all of the information in the appropriate manner. Unbelief is a condition. It is a condition of the sinful heart of fallen man. 
It is a condition that blinds people to the glorious nature of the truth. It blinds people to their greatest need. That's what Jesus here teaches us in our text. It was unbelief that blinded the Jews to the person of John the Baptist and to the person of Jesus Christ. It was unbelief that caused them to refuse to dance to the piper. John the Baptist, the last prophet, the greatest prophet, was sent by God to prepare the way for the Christ, and the masses rejected the message. They refused to repent, and they ridiculed him as a religious fanatic, a demon-possessed lunatic. But, but, but the same sin of unbelief blinded the Jews not only to Jesus and to John, but it closed their hearts and minds to the greatest story ever told. And they rejected the messengers and the message in blind unbelief. John proclaimed the message, repent for the kingdom is at hand. He warns the Jews of, of his day, flee from the wrath of God for judgment is near. Already now the axe is laid at the foot of the tree. And the Jews in turn wanted him to be dancing and piping. But the message of the gospel is that the first thing necessary, you heard it from me this, and from scripture this morning, the first thing necessary to know about is sin. That's the message John and Jesus brought to the Jews of their day. And that message has not and may not change. Also today, the world needs to know that in order to find the Christ, in order to find salvation, men and women, first of all, need to understand what they need to be saved from, their sin. It's an integral part of the message. And that part, a recognition of personal sin, is unacceptable to modern autonomous man. Yes, we weep and we mourn in the knowledge that there are masses of people with whom we work and walk who will ultimately perish in unbelief. That we work for and we plead with them to believe the gospel message. We pray that God will use us as instruments in his hand to teach such men and women of their great need of the Christ. And we ought to weep genuine tears of sorrow for those who refuse in unbelief to embrace the Christ. However, we need to also weep tears of joy and thanksgiving in the knowledge that there are numbers of people, numbers as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as, as grains of sand on the seashore who have believed, who will continue to believe the message and have embraced the messengers and now, as we heard, violently storm the kingdom. We hear of them again in the concluding words of our text when Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the wisdom of God was justified by the children of God, or if you will, by those to whom the Lord had granted the wisdom to become sons and daughters of the living God. These people stormed the kingdom. To such people was granted the eyes of faith to see and to believe the message of the Baptist. They recognized the divine wisdom in the words and the works of Jesus. Such people recognized the Christ as one who had come to take away their sin and they embraced him. The wisdom of John the Baptist when he insisted on repentance. The wisdom of Jesus when he held out the hope of salvation even to those who would reject it in unbelief was shown to be fully justified by what it accomplished in the hearts and lives of those who by sovereign grace were enabled to give the proper response to both of these preachers. Wisdom's children 
are those who were wise enough to take the heart, the message of John and Jesus. Between John and Jesus, there was this similarity. Both came and proclaimed the gospel. And yet between John and Jesus was also a distinct contrast. And that contrast was not dancing or mourning. No, the contrast needs to be seen in that while John proclaimed the good news of the gospel, Jesus came into this world that there may be the good news of the gospel to preach. Our text earlier spoke of lamenting and dancing. The world scoffs. The world claims to have discovered a discrepancy here, a contradiction in the gospel message. How can it be both dancing and mourning? How can the good news contain both tears of sorrow and tears of joy? My dear, dear, precious saints of God, here we have stumbled on one of the greatest truths of the two parts of the glorious gospel. The plain truth is that when the gospel is presented to the heart and mind of one prepared by the wisdom of God, the first response is a recognition of sin. And such a man, or a woman, but such a man will immediately be moved to tears of sorrow for their years of having offended God. Even then, all through this life, even after embracing the cross, they will, he will daily mourn his sin with tears of sorrow. But his tears of sorrow will mingle and blend with his tears of untold, unfathomable joy in the knowledge that he is not his own, but he belongs to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The world wants us to know that the gospel message is full of contradictions. How can you say, repent and rejoice? How can you ask me to dance and lament? That's an unacceptable contradiction. Not so, says our text. In order to come to Christ, the first thing is to be convinced of our sin. One who has not mourned, over personal or corporate sin has not even begun to understand Christianity. But once a penitent child has seen and understood his sin in the light of the holiness of God and grieves over it, then immediately and at the same time, the Spirit of God descends upon him and breathes peace. He will convince you of the forgiveness of your sin in the blood of the Lamb, he will call upon you to dance in the joy of the Lord. In fact, he will dance with you. He will assure you that you are his child. He will tell you through your tears of joy and sorrow that there is life beyond the grave and that you, because you have mourned over your sin, you are going to dance with him throughout all of eternity in glory. May it be so for each of us and our children. Shall we pray? Lord, speak to me, that I may speak in living echoes of thy tone. As thou hast sought, so let me seek thine erring children, lost and lone. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt and when and where, until thy blessed face I see.